0: It's Monday, May 3rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Jason Moser. Good to see you. Happy May. Happy May. Happy May. We have good <laughs> news for market timers and we have a media deal to discuss, but we're going to start today with Mr. Buffett. Berkshire Hathaway's operating income in the first quarter rose 20% they bought back $6.5 billion worth of stock, and Berkshire's cash on the balance sheet grew and now stands at $145 billion. And All of that, Jason, took a backseat to comments that were made at the annual meeting over the weekend, which is that Vice Chairman Greg Abel, who runs all of the non-insurance operations at Berkshire Hathaway, is going to succeed Warren Buffett as CEO. And and for those who missed it, this was not uh, a formal announcement by the company. This happened during the Q and A when there was a question about how big Berkshire Hathaway has become, sort of the sprawling nature of all these different operations, and and you know how how are you going to you know is is that more difficult to keep a handle on? And Charlie Munger responded by saying Greg will keep the culture. Yeah. <laughs> like basically when Warren Whoops. and I are gone, Greg is going to keep the culture. And it's like, oh, well I guess that's that then.
1: <laughs> do you think do you think Charlie under his breath was like, damn it, I did not mean to say that. Sorry, I, think, <laughs> I think
0: Warren under his breath may have said Damn it, Charlie! Why did you say that? <laughs>
1: well, uh, I mean, it, we've been we've been talking about this. Uh, it, it seems like every year for this meeting, it's just kind of that question of like, what? Who is the name? I mean, in hindsight, God, it seems like it was so obvious. I mean, just the name alone, he's quite able to handle the challenge. I mean, you know, we should have guessed. I guess we should have known, is what I'm saying. Um, but it, it it is a little bit of a surprise because I think a lot of uh, a lot of folks thought that Ajit Jain might be the name uh, that ultimately would have would have been uh, occupying that that CEO suite. But it, it sounds like it's going to be Greg Abel, and and I mean I, Charlie and Warren know the business better better than anyone, right? And and I think um, again, it sounds like. It would be a team effort, no question. Um, but it is it is nice to get that certainty, right? I mean, now all of a sudden, you have an idea of who they they feel like is going to be able to, to to keep this company going uh, in the direction it's headed. I, th- I think it's it's a testament to to. Their feelings on where the company is today and where they feel like it, it has the opportunity to go in the coming years. Because there, there's been obviously a lot of criticism uh, recently, particularly with Warren and Charlie kind of being the old guys get off my lawn, old school investing, and you guys aren't nearly as relevant anymore. Um, they seem to think that what they're doing is still working and they've got a team in place to kind of help keep steering that ship in the same direction. And, and frankly, I think that's the right call.
0: I think it's the right call as well, and uh, I didn't realize that Greg Abel is ten years younger than Ajit Jain, Um, (laughs) and and obviously both of them are significantly younger than Buffett and Munger. But I I I do wonder if that um, I'm not saying it's the deciding factor, but it's certainly you know if if you've been running Berkshire Hathaway for as long as Buffett and Munger have, then whoever is going to succeed you, you want. Them to have as long a run as possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I appreciate that. You you want to set yourself up for success, so you don't have to worry about this problem again for a long time. And it sounds like that will be the case. And and I think, I mean, when when you look at Mr. Jane versus Mr. Abel, I mean, I I was I was reading something earlier in the Wall Street Journal on this that it, it sort of it, it described the differences between the two and kind of what they do and how they think and what they're focused on, <clears throat> and in regard to the business itself. Uh, Mr. Jane, who who oversees the insurance business, uh, doesn't. He's he's not he's not reading ten Ks. He's focused mainly uh, keeping up on on the insurance industry and analyzing uh, the insurance side of the business, which is obviously a big part of Berkshire Hathaway. But it's not all of it, right? I mean, there are plenty of other aspects to the business, and and that's where I feel like maybe maybe Abel is the better person for this job because. Uh, of the fact that he spent so much of his time focused on the bigger picture it seems not just insurance but really focused on uh, the competitive threats uh, that are out there uh, that, that Berkshire Hathaway is facing not just from an insurance perspective but from a a sort of conglomerate perspective right I mean this is a big business that does a lot of different things and so it sounds like it sounds like Abel is a bit more focused on that big picture um, Landscape and and that I think probably benefits the company and and then the bonus there is it keeps uh, Ajit Jain in place doing something that he's really good at right I mean we have a long track record of of Mr. Jain's performance there in in what he's been doing uh, for the insurance side of that business so I think it really just keeps two people in place uh, doing what they do really well uh, in in that. It sounds like is is more or less your your sort of modern day Charlie and Warren, uh, you know, tandem. They're running the business, uh, focused on obviously more than just just managing the portfolios, but but really focused on running the business at large.
0: You're going to be digging into this on industry focus um, later today, so um, we'll we will move on. Uh, from Berkshire Hathaway, but definitely for for folks looking for uh, more on Berkshire Hathaway, because there was a lot of stuff that uh, we don't have time to get to that. uh, Check out industry focus later today. In 2015, Verizon bought AOL for $4.4 billion. In 2017, Verizon bought Yahoo for $4.5 billion. All of those properties became Oath, an unfortunate name that uh, <laughs> uh, uh, wiser heads prevailed, and then it was rebranded Verizon Media Group. And today, Verizon is selling its media group to Apollo Global Management for $5 billion, which is you know less than $8.9 billion. Um, it, yeah,
1: I guess it is, isn't
0: it? <laughs> uh, when I saw this story this morning, one of my thoughts was, oh, that's right. Verizon owns both of those media groups. And it's, you know, there are a couple of things we can get into here, but one of them, Jason, is this is, just from a basic strategy standpoint, this is Verizon very clearly sending the signal hey, we tried this media thing for a while, <laughs> and it's not working for us. And we know that some of our competitors are still doing this, but we are getting out of this game.
1: Yeah. And, and so. It's funny, this is a perfect segue, I think, because the quote that stands out to me um, in regard to this story is uh, one from none other than Charlie Munger, when he said, and I quote, acknowledging what you don't know is the dawning of wisdom, end quote. And and that's something we like to bandy about a good bit on the investing team, in, in some in some way, shape, or form. It's like, listen, man, understand what you don't understand. Know what you don't know. Don't get in over your head. And time and time again, you know, people, businesses, we all do it. I mean, it's just it's human nature. We do it, and then we we look back and we regret it. And hopefully, we learn from it and we move forward. Um, I think this is going to be one of those situations where Verizon. Uh, looks back, they realize, "Eh, listen, we tried something, it wasn't really in our wheelhouse, we didn't really know what we were getting into fully. Uh, Because in in hindsight, if you you look at the competitive landscape now, when it comes to ad tech and uh, media, how in the world you think you could be going up against some of those incumbents, it's just like a a, a landline and mobile operator is beyond me. I'm sure they're probably telling themselves that now. Uh, But hey, better late than than never. right? And, And I think to your point, um, the amount of money that was invested in this part of the business in Verizon Media, formerly known as Oath, uh, it, it, it was it was a I, I don't want to say it was a dying business, but it was a shrinking one. I mean, if you look at 2019, Verizon Media revenues were seven and a half billion. 2020 they were seven billion, and I think you could argue that that was that was a pretty good year when they chalked up that seven billion. Um, it, it was continuing to get worse when you couple the competitive landscape with what these operators, specifically Verizon and AT&T, and to, and to an extent T-Mobile uh, business, uh, they, they have to invest a ton of money right now into this 5G rollout. Uh, spectrum bid alone is, is really uh, costing these companies a lot of money. And to put, put some numbers around that, uh, recently the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, announced that there was an $81 billion auction for that 5G uh, midband spectrum, and the initial estimates were that it would be around 20 to 30 billion dollars. It came in at 81 billion dollars. Verizon was the big spender of that 81 billion dollars. They they bid almost 46 billion dollars on that 5G uh, spectrum. So they, I think, a while back decided, hey, let's focus on what we know and what we need to do because. When you when you weigh out the priorities, 5G, and in, in, in the subsequent Gs to come are, are far more important than them trying to build some kind of an ad tech business uh, based on dwindling media properties. And, and so clearly, they're going to have a lot of obligations here over the coming years in building this this uh, infrastructure out in in uh, coming up with the capital to to, to pay for it all. Uh, Focusing on this Verizon Media side of the business just seemed like it was a waste of time, and it was becoming a waste of money. Um, unloading it makes perfect sense, and, and like I said, better late than never.
0: In the early days of the internet, it's almost hard to overstate how popular and dominant these two consumer businesses were. It is
1: amazing. A- to a- think AOL,
0: about, AOL's market cap at one point was more than two hundred billion dollars. Yahoo's was over $100 billion, so the fact that this combined entity at one point valued at $300 billion is being sold off for $5 billion, it's, uh, I think it is, among other things, a nice reminder for us as investors. Just always check in on the business, because you know, there, were, there were people, and by people, I'll just name one, David Gardner. David Gardner did so well uh, investing in AOL. Yeah. Back when it was first America Online, like I think that might have been the first recommendation he made in the in the old Fool portfolio um, uh, back in the mid '90s. And again, these these were businesses that had tremendous runs, um, but uh, competition is forever and businesses that can't stay ahead of the competition end up like this. Yeah,
1: and I mean, it's a great reminder too, like, I mean, content is really difficult on, on an ongoing and sustainable basis. It's just really difficult because you've always got, like you said, competition is forever. Uh, you have a million and one channels out there now and, and, and pretty much you're gonna be able to find whatever you want at, at the click of a, of a mouse. Um, and and I, I do feel like, I mean, if you, i don't frequent yahoo all that often I, I i will say the yahoo of today is markedly different than than the yahoo of uh, seven eight years ago i mean t- and i mean i don't mean to to come down too hard on it but really frankly to me yahoo at this point just seems like a, a glorified version of the national Enquirer. i mean i don't know when the last time you <laughs> went to yahoo was but every once in a while, you just you end up there, and I'm looking through these. I mean, I just I, it seems like it's just catering to the lowest common denominator, and so if you're doing that, you're you're making a bet. You're, you're kind of saying, okay, this is what we're going to do, uh, but that comes with consequences, and so it's not surprising to me to see uh, brands like Yahoo sort of on the way out because when you when you look at what they're doing today, it, it's it's not. Terribly meaningful. It seems to be very clickbait driven, um, and, and I, I'm sure that was partly by design. I mean, when, when you're developing an ad business, it's all you're trying to figure out how to get as many clicks as possible. Um, eventually, though, uh, people really, uh, you know, they're they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna come and go based on what you, what you're uh, what you're putting out there. And uh, yeah, we've seen these two these two behemoths. Um, have, have been uh, competed right out of their respective marketplaces, I think.
0: Happy first day, well, first trading day in May uh, for all you market timers out there. This is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is the day where the, the old adage, sell in May and go away gets trotted out. And uh, yeah, every year I just shake my head at this, that there, uh-huh. are, that there are people, presume, some of whom are presumably serious people, who take this to heart, and this is their strategy for investing?
1: Um, yeah, for whatever reason, those those little those little one-liners get a lot of attention, and I mean, they they sound almost like I mean, it sounds almost like you're hearing it straight from Troy McClure on The Simpsons, right? I mean, <laughs> it's just like seriously, like what? Why, right? And, and I guess it's just the the going wisdom is that from May through October, you've got your bankers taking vacations, and there's no real buying going on. So people just kind of sell, and then they go off for the summer and do their thing until they come back for the fall. Uh, and and I, I mean, maybe there is something to that, but I mean, at least the numbers would tell you that uh, it it might pay to stay invested. I mean, there was some very interesting data that I found. Um, from LPL Research and Fact set that looks back to 2011. And if you go back to 2011, the, the 10 years that follow from 2011 through 2020, of those 10 years, if you look at the window from May through October, right, the sell in May, or maybe it's May 2 October, I'm sorry, but if you sell in May and, and go away, uh, in, in those 10 years, only two of those years were returns actually negative, right? The other eight, those returns were positive. Um, and, and in 2020, I mean, let's think about 2020, right? I mean, at, at the time in March and April, we it, it felt like the world for investors was coming to an end because it was this precipitous bear market that hit us. No one would have ever thought, based on the research that we had done, that it would recover so quickly, and yet here we are. Can you imagine not being invested between May and October of last year? Can you imagine not buying stocks during that time? Because I, 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 I guess I can imagine it, but I choose not to, <laughs> because I'm, I'm really glad that we didn't sell in May and go away, because the returns last year for that window were 12.3%. And uh, to me, that sounds like a time where you actually want to be invested. So there's there's clear data that says you probably shouldn't sell in May and go away. I think maybe maybe we we alter this, we change it around a little bit, and say instead of selling in May and going away, maybe you just don't sell anything. And if you're really if you're really tied to not, just don't buy anything. Like if you really feel that strongly about it, because the problem with selling is once you do that, you're hitting the reset button. You're foregoing all of the benefits that you that you gain from being a long-term shareholder, uh, the compounding, the growth, the gains. Uh, you couple that with tax liabilities, uh, potential tax liabilities that may exist. I mean, just it seems like there are more reasons uh, to not sell than there are to sell.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned taxes because that's that's another part of this that I just can't get my head around. That (laughs) that like part of my investing strategy involves choosing to pay higher taxes. (laughs) Why?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I mean like it's just it's one of those things that's always going to exist. Right, you have to consider it. I mean, if you're if you're working with a, with a, a an account that's that's uh, that's tax exempt, I mean an IRA something like that, you don't have to worry about that. But still, I mean, just look back at the actual data. I mean, again, of those ten years, two were negative, and of those two, I will say, 2011, the return in that window was was uh, negative 8.1 percent, but the other negative return, it was negative 0.3 percent. So it was essentially flat. I mean, we're rounding that up to flat, Chris. Uh, So, I I mean, the numbers tell you, you should probably not sell in May and go away. Um, Inevitably, some people will do it, we're just going to spend uh, the next few months, hopefully, Chris, telling people why they shouldn't.
0: (laughs) Jason Moser, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.